Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. This is your moment. Your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Today is Friday, December 11, 2020. Coming up at Roller Martin on the field for the Supreme Court could be deciding very soon if they will take this ridiculous lawsuit out of Texas targeting Georgia and other states. <laughs> where Joe Biden was elected president. And more Republicans signed on to this amicus brief. How stupid are these people? We'll also talk to Congresswoman Val Demings uh, about a resolution that dealt with uh, diversifying media ownership. Vice President, uh, excuse me, President-elect, guys, uh, President-elect Joe Biden picked Susan Rice, uh, of course, as his national uh, domestic policy leader. Also today, uh, Marsha uh, Fudge speaks, a congresswoman from Ohio, uh, after he named her as the head of HUD. We'll show you that as well. Plus, I talked with Senator, U.S. Senate candidate John Ossoff when I was in Atlanta recently. We'll have that for you. We'll also speak with Michigan State Representative Cynthia Johnson, who has been receiving lynching threats for videos she posted on Facebook dealing with voters there. And she was stripped of her assignments in the legislature. What's that all about? We also have a COVID update. Where we'll discuss how some people may see a vaccine as early as next week and how the Trump White House is putting pressure on the FDA to approve Pfizer's vaccine. 
Despite jurors pleased to commute Brandon Bernard's sentence, he was executed last night with the Trump folks doing their desperate to kill more people before he gets out of office. And we'll speak with Baltimore Mayor Brandon Scott about his plans to tackle Baltimore's rising COVID numbers, gun violence, and housing in the city. Plus, we remember the life and legacy of actor Tommy Tiny Lister. Many of know him as Debo from Friday. Folks, it's a jam-packed show. It is time to bring the funk on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Let's go. Folks, uh, it is a busy Friday. We are awaiting. We're hearing that the Supreme Court could very well decide uh, decide the case uh, whether to accept this ridiculous lawsuit out of Texas. Okay, this ridiculous lawsuit out of Texas, uh, where they're challenging the election results in Georgia. More Republicans have signed on to this amicus brief, folks. Uh, in fact, now House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has signed on to it. Do you understand how seditious this is? These Republicans are literally asking the Supreme Court to overturn the votes of millions of people. And so we're waiting that decision. Uh, once we get it, we'll have our legal panel ready to, to break this thing down, whether they accept it or, or reject it. And so we'll let you know about that. Now, today, uh, President-elect Joe Biden unveiled more members of his cabinet, and including uh, Susan Rice, who will head the, the, the National Domestic Policy Council, as well as Congresswoman Marsha Fudge, who will be heading HUD. Here's Susan Rice, what she had to say today. Thank you so much, Mr. President-elect. Madam Vice President-elect, I'm honored to join this tremendous team. Today we confront a profoundly connected set of crises, a relentless pandemic, a struggling economy, urgent demands for racial equity and justice, a climate in need of healing, a democracy in need of repair, and a world in need of renewed American leadership. In the 21st century, our foreign, economic, and domestic imperatives are deeply intertwined. Tackling these challenges is personal to me. I'm a descendant of immigrants and the enslaved, and service is in our blood. My paternal great-grandfather was born a slave in South Carolina and joined the Union Army. He went on to get a college degree, become an AME minister, and he founded the Bordentown School in New Jersey, which for seven decades provided African Americans with vocational and college preparatory educations. Two generations later, my father, Emmett Rice, served as a Tuskegee Airman and as a governor of the Federal Reserve. My maternal grandparents came to this country from Jamaica with no education. But working for decades as a janitor and a maid, 
They saved and they scraped to send all five of their children to college and on to professional success. My mother, Lois Rice, was known as the mother of the Pell Grant program, which has enabled 80 million Americans to reach college. And as she liked to say, not bad for a poor colored girl from Portland, Maine. But today, for far too many, the American dream has become an empty promise, a cruel mockery of lives held back by barriers, new and old. That is not good enough for any American. But we know that throughout our history, Americans have forged opportunity out of crisis. After the Civil War, we ended slavery and enshrined the concept of equal protection under the law. During the Great Depression, we established the Works Progress Administration and Civilian Conservation Corps. After World War II, we enacted the GI Bill. In the 1960s, we abolished legal segregation, established full voting rights, and enacted Medicare and Medicaid. Now, at the foot of yet another bridge between crisis and opportunity, I'm honored and excited to take on this role. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's vision for our future is expansive, but achievable. America must finally become a nation where every child, from Akron to Arkansas, from the Bronx to Brownsville, from the Sioux Nation to South Central Los Angeles, can dream without limits and make her dreams come true. I have no illusions about the difficulty of making that vision real, but we are here to get hard stuff done. Our top priorities will be to help end the pandemic and revitalize the economy so that it delivers for all, to bring dignity and humanity to our broken immigration system, to advance racial equity, justice, and civil rights for all, to ensure that health care is accessible and affordable, and to educate and train Americans to compete and thrive in the 21st century. I profoundly believe that we all rise or fall together, absolutely all of us. So Mr. President-elect, Madam Vice President-elect, I promise you, I will do everything I can to help this country I love to build back better, to make our government deliver for all Americans and for working families, and to bring the American dream far closer to reality for all. Thank you. In a moment, we'll hear from Congresswoman Marsha Fudge, uh, who, of course, has been named Secretary of HUD right now. We want to go to Congresswoman Val Demings, who is from Florida. Uh, she joins us right now. Congresswoman, glad to always have you on the show. Uh, a whole lot of stuff happening. Uh, I want to get, I want to talk about uh, your media ownership resolution. Uh, but, 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 but I got to talk about, one, I want to get your thoughts on uh, this team being assembled by Biden. Uh, one of your uh, colleagues will be coming in as HUD Secretary, but also the CBC has been making it perfectly clear. Joe Biden, black folk put you in. You got the nomination for black people in South Carolina. Black women voted for you at a higher rate than anybody else. Black men were number two. So we want to see black folks in the administration, top to bottom. 
But Roland, we can't stop to start, you know, talk about, just talk about the strength of black voters, the strength of black women, the strength of black men, and then not see them in the decision-making positions. And I'm so proud. That's what we have seen the last couple of weeks. Black, competent, strong people who are ready to do the job in the decision-making positions. And I think, quite frankly, you know, we, I've heard this uh, scripture that says, we have not because we ask not. And I'm glad that the members of the CBC have made it quite clear that, look, we have people within our ranks who can do the job. We expect uh, to really be rewarded, if you will, by seeing people who look like us, people who are ready, people who are competent in those decisions. So positions. So it's been really an exciting time. Uh, let's talk about uh, this other issue. Uh, these 126 traders who serve with the House representatives, these idiots have signed on to this Texas bill. I mean, and now you got House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. They literally want to overturn the will of the people. And in fact, one of your colleagues wants to use a civil rights statute to bar them from even taking their seats in Congress. I'm just sort of laughing at the people who were elected from Georgia and Pennsylvania and Michigan who say that the election was bad, except their elections, which were on the same ballot. Roland, you know, I saw Representative Pascarell's um, suggestion today, basically, that, you know, anyone who undermines our democracy should not be seated in the 117th Congress. And I, I'm reminded of the impeachment trial, which was about what? All about the president undermining our democracy. I combed through the list more than once to make sure I had a clear understanding who was on the list the members, 10 members from Florida, disappointing, not shocking. Um, they're basically, I mean, you said it, they're undermining the democracy that is so precious, the democracy that they were elected to protect. And I think it's quite frankly, just like former Republican president, Jeb Bush, I mean, a Republican governor of Florida, Jeb Bush said today, this is crazy. It's absolutely crazy, and they should be held accountable for it. I agree, and uh, you said you did what I did. You went through the list, and my whole deal is I want to see everybody on it because I want to be real clear who we should never hear from ever again about democracy and voting and law and order and what's right because these people are showing their true colors. Uh, the reason we want to talk to you today dealt with the issue of uh, home ownership. And so I want you to explain to folks this House Resolution 549, what it actually means, what, it, what is it intended to do, and what will be the outcome for African Americans? Well, Roland, thank you so much. We have been working on this since uh, our time in Congress in 2017. Uh, we know, we all know, are familiar with the Kerner report that basically said 50, over 50 years ago now, that the lack of diversity can contribute to racial tension. The lack of diversity in media, on the big screen, in radio, in ownership, who st tells the story matters. Who owns the company matters. You help to frame the story. So whether you're on the big screen, whether you're in radio, whether you're in printed media, whether you are in front of the camera or behind the camera, on the microphone or not, diverse voices are important to how our views 
or shaped how our opinions are framed. And so this was a commitment, and I'm so excited about the overwhelming bipartisan support we received yesterday to say that Congress is committed to making sure that diversity is included in every realm, every aspect of the media. And so we've been working, we have a brain trust that we've been working with some of the brightest and the best in the field, bringing them to the table. We've had summits during the annual leadership uh, conference with the CBC. We've invited some of the brightest minds uh, to deal with this issue, to help us really move this legislation forward, not just to a commitment, but to uh, actual action in the field. And so we are excited about it. We still have a lot of work to do, but the first major hurdle uh, is pass us with the passing of this resolution. But but this is what I think is, um, and look, I absolutely believe in black ownership. But the issue that we face is really not ownership. The issue that we face is even after we launch it, we start it, we buy it, we own it, how we're being locked out of the dollars that drive the ownership. So I'm going to go here. Two years ago, the NNPA worked with Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton, and she asked the General Accounting Office to do an audit to ascertain how much the federal government spends on advertising each year and how much goes to black businesses. Go to my iPad, please. This is what it said. Fed ad purchases from black media only 1%, uh, only 1% of $5 billion. And so uh, in a, in a five-year period, in a five-year period, I'm going to show you in a second, in a five-year period, a uh, 41-page report, federal government agencies spent $5 billion in advertising, just $327 million went to minority-owned businesses, but other $327, 51000000 million only went to black-owned. I can tell you, as a, as, a, as a black media company, this is the issue that we find with political campaigns that we find with the DSCC, the DCCC, the DNC. We found it with the Biden campaign. We sat all over. Now you talk about federal agencies. And so you can own it, but you can never have capacity and grow it to be able to be a CNN or MSNBC or Fox News because we get completely frozen out of the ad dollars. Roland, one of the major components of this commitment, this resolution, is that the strong cannot survive or should not be able to survive at the expense of the weak. And the information that you just laid out in terms of advertising dollars, that has been a top priority for us. You're absolutely correct. I certainly am a member of the Congressional Black Caucus. We talked about it then. I was one of the recruitment chairs with the uh, DCCC. We talked about it then. I certainly have worked with the Biden campaign. We talked about it then. And so this legislation, we certainly understand that the strength goes where the dollars goes. And if we're going to get to the point where we need to get to with diversity and all things in this area, then the dollars have got to accompany the resolution and the legislation. And so we have a lot of work ahead of us, but I am very, very encouraged by where we can get to if we continue to have the political will and hear from voices like yours to help us get to where we need to get to. I'm gonna tell you, I mean, that, 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 I mean, that really is the piece. And I'm just gonna just use an example. I mean, you know, and, and just, just, just to understand, federal government is one thing. And I think certainly, and this happened with the census. Your colleague, Congressman Stephen Horsford, was on here. When he met with Y&R, Young and Rubicam, 
which was the agency that they picked to handle the $300 million for the census. They told him, we are not going to buy any advertising for any newspapers, 50,000 circulation or less. That arbitrary decision completely impacts 98% of all black newspapers. 98%. And now, but here's the other deal. So I have to deal with them on this. Let me tell you how, they, how the game was rigged. YNR got the contract. Then they gave it to a subsidiary that they also owned to manage it. Then they partitioned the digital portion out to a subsidiary they own. Then they partitioned the TV and radio to a subsidiary they own. So they got paid three different times. We filled out the, uh, the, 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 the ad deal in April, never heard from them. I called them out on the air, on social media. They called Carol H. Williams, the black ad agency, which who they froze out. And, oh my God, what's going on? She said, uh, y'all ain't responding to his proposal. That's the only reason we got uh, some money, because I had to literally call them out. So again, part of this deal is how these ga games are being played. Now that's just, again, and, and the CBC fought to get, Barbara Lee told me they fought to get 70 million added to the budget to reach black folks. But they, so here's what I think all should happen. The CBC should do an audit of Young and Rubicam and say how much of the census money went to black media and pinpoint it because that's also part of the deal. They don't, they, don't, they don't like the word audit because they're controlling the dollars. In these white ad agencies, they come up with the metrics to freeze us out. The game that they play to freeze black media out is stunning. Oh, Roland, I'm well aware of the games that they play, but those are the kind of things that we need to be directly involved in. I was serious about voices like yours coming to the table because this is an issue that we've dealt with way too long. I think we made a, a yeoman's effort over the last couple of years to really try to hold them accountable. But as you've just indicated, I think the census is just one primary example. We know that black and brown communities, many of them are very um, suspect, if you will, about the census and reaching them through black media, reaching them through black newspapers and brown newspapers and other black radio and others is the way to get the message to them about the importance of the census. And so that is a primary example that we can use going forward, whether it's an audit, whether it's hearings, but really looking at where we need to go, what games are still being played and what path needs to be take, taken to get us where we need to be. So when the census rolls around again, we will not find ourselves in the same place. Well, we stand with you. And I, and, and I said this, uh, I mentioned that $5 billion to Senator Chuck Schumer when he was on here. Uh, I'm still trying to get uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi to come on. I told her office, and let me be real clear, the white staffers in her office, that she got to be doing black media as well, not just doing MSNBC and CNN. And But again, I said to the Biden-Harris uh, folk, we coming after that $5 billion because there's no way we can ever grow if we're frozen out. And that's, and that's really how the game has been played. And so uh, we appreciate uh, this resolution. Anything that we can do to simply let us know. Uh, but uh, in the words of that great financial wizard gangster uh, Frank Lucas, I'm going to get that money. <laughs> Bro, 
<laughs> Thank you so much for inviting me on. It's so great to be with you again. No, I appreciate it. Congresswoman Val Demons, uh, great job, the resolution, and we'll keep it going. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right. Uh, I want to go to bring in my panel right now. Several things that we want to bring up. I'm going to play the video in a moment of Congresswoman Marsha Fudge, uh, her speech uh, with HUD. Uh, but uh, but uh, Lawn Victoria Burke uh, joins us right now. Uh, Amisha Cross, are you there as well? I see both of you there. Uh, and uh, Lauren, I'll start with you again. Look, I, pick the topic, follow the money. Those three words, follow the money. So you can, you can, you can talk ownership. But if you don't get those ad dollars, you don't survive. That's right. And everything in American life and in American history has been about money and ownership, money and ownership. Uh, who does the work a lot of times is not as valuable as who does the collecting of the money. We saw it in the music industry in the early days of the music industry. Certainly see it in the media industry all the time. And to build uh, the type of scale that needs to be built, just as you said, with regard to media ownership is key. I think I was at the Eleanor Holmes Norton press conference uh, where she was trying to audit to find out the money for the advertising and, and double, uh, the um, uh, the uh, NNPA had partnered with her on that. I don't know that they ever actually got a answer. You really have to be so on top of every detail of what is going on when it comes to these money allocations. and. As you know better than anybody, the conversation with DCCC, DNC, and DSCC has been interminable. It's gone on forever. We've been talking about this forever. It never seems to come to a conclusion. And it really takes somebody who uh, is on that case and on their case and covering that over a matter of year after year after year after year, whether they be in the media or in Congress, to really hold this, this particular issue accountable. And it never seems to get, it never seems to get resolved. Uh, but I'm a big believer that one of the reasons it doesn't get resolved is that because, of course, the people who are making the decisions, who are controlling the money, never, uh, one, never look like us and never have our best interest at heart. That's a key thing. So when we don't get these positions that control these decisions, uh, that's a huge problem in this. Well, Lauren, I think, well, Lauren and Misha, I think the reason that happens is because also, look, Frederick Douglass said it best. And I'm sorry, if anybody can show me an example where black people have not had to agitate, agitate, agitate right. for anything, uh, please do so. He said, Amisha, power concedes nothing without a demand, never have, never will. The only way to get the money is to expose their asses. I'm telling you, the, I had, I put Y and R on blast for four right. straight days, lit they ass up on this show, lit them up on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. They call, they call Carolise Williams, oh my God, where is this coming from? She said, y'all have not responded to his damn proposal. Then they were like, what should we do? She said, cut his ass a check. I mean, and that's the deal. We have to actually yell, cuss, holler, scream, talk about your mama just for them to do right because they want to keep the money to themselves. Right. Exactly. No, you're absolutely correct, Roland. And I think that, you know, for, for black media, the the proof has been its weight in gold for a long time now. We know of, of its extent of reach. We know of how much it pushes in terms of advocacy, how much it pushes in terms of feet on the ground, boots on the ground to get things done, what it means in terms of PR, what it means in terms of driving the conversation for uh, minority communities. 
the focal point isn't necessarily at this point proving worth, which is uh, which is what is often argued from some of these um, so some of these um, institutions in charge of dealing out cash. It is more so who's actually controlling the voices. And when you limit that amount of money, when you limit the amount of um, the amount of reach that can be given by black media, I think that that's the, the ultimate goal here. So we know that you know voices like yours, media that we see from um, from, from some of the great people of color who are driving the conversation now. Particularly, I like how you coaxed it in um, the, the argument and the push for what we just saw, not only the 2020 election, but also when we were talking about the census itself. Of course, there are ramifications for the amount of people who surely did not participate in the census. And we're going to see that very shortly. I think that had that money had been given, have we seen uh, more strength and more fortitude when it comes to paying attention to the needs of Black media specifically, we would see stronger outcomes for things like that. It's continually frustrating that we have to go to con Congress members, we have to go to and almost beg private sector leaders to actually pay attention to the fact that black media needs to have more funding. Um, and the larger white conglomerates just don't have to do that. And it's, no, they it's, don't. It's, it's really sad. Let, let, let me, let me, for our audience, for our audience, um, uh, I, I really need to put this uh, in perspective for our audience so you can understand why the resolution of Congresswoman Val Demis is important and why the dollars are important because they go together. So this is, this is, so this is real simple. On Capitol Hill right now, and Lauren can answer this question very easily. Lauren, is there a full-time black journalist reporting on Capitol Hill for one or all black media outlets? Oh, no, no, no. Stay right. Stunt. No, no. So I, I, I need everybody listening right now. Need everybody like listening. Huh? The credentialing process there, you know, to your point with regard to the 50,000, that little rule that they put in there about you had to have a media organization over 50,000. To get credential on Capitol Hill, you have to have a media organization of a certain size. And most black media organizations can't make that requirement. So what that means is when we're covering a big event such as inauguration, you can't send somebody to get that content to provide value to your news organization because you don't meet the requirements to get the credential. And then you deal with people such as I have had to for 20 years, like like Jeff Kent and the press photographers gallery who drive you crazy because they want to pull credentials and, and come up with rules that they don't come up with anyone else for. And, and frankly, that's been going on for years. Now, now. So here's a deal for the people who are watching so you can understand. You take the show that we have, okay? Um, they ain't no way in hell they can try to deny us credentials with our numbers. We're doing 25 to 30 million views every single month. I'll, right. My deal would be, I dare your ass to tell me no. And then it's gonna be hell to pay. But let me explain to the people what, what, what I'm trying to get to. If I don't get the additional advertising dollars, then I can't hire more staff. Right. Y'all, this is real simple. If, if, if this show goes from a million, million and a half, two million, 2.5 million, to five or six or seven million in revenue, guess what I can do? I can hire a full-time congressional correspondent. 
Right. Whose job would be to cover the CDC and all of its members. Right. I can actually hire a bureau chief in Atlanta and a bureau person in Chicago and a bureau person in New York to provide coverage of the three largest cities where black people live. Right. See, right. folks, I need, I need so y'all, this, this, this ain't rocket science. Right. So when they starve us of the dollars, right. we stay small. When you starve us of the dollars and we stay small, we then can't report from our perspective and what we care about. And so what they do is, so what they do, so what Lauren has explained, they say, ah, you, you, you too small. Well, I'm too right. small because you freeze the money in from me. And right. then how, how do they freeze the money? They freeze the money by saying, you too small. Well, hell, I can't, I, I, I can't grow. I can't build capacity if I can't get more money. If I can't and, get... And the money, the money because, is built on clicks to the website, viewership to the websites, viewership to what you're doing, your show. The way you build that viewership, of course, is to have that bureau chief in Atlanta, to have that reporter on Capitol Hill that brings that content that nobody else is covering and bringing, and that bring viewership to your to your product. And, and so, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. And see here, now let, let's take it further. Mm-hmm. Through the app, through the YouTube studio app, I can check at any moment our performance over the last 28 days. Right. So I'm gonna get, I'm talking to y'all in real time. In real time, in the last 28 days, uh, the watch time for this show just on YouTube is 123.4 million minutes, Andrew. The views are 13.6 million. We've had an increase of 21,700 subscribers. Uh, and that's just simply in uh, the last 28 days, okay? Now, here's the deal. Without additional revenue, I then can't run promotional ads on Facebook, Periscope, Instagram, YouTube that would actually take me from 13.6 million views to 25, 30 million views, which would then take my revenue over 100,000 per month to 150 to 200,000 and 300,000. So without the resources, can't build, can't grow. This is what I am explaining is how even when we do get to own, we are completely frozen out. And every single white ad agency is doing this and then they don't. Uh, we are getting essentially 15 to 20 cents on the dollar compared to mainstream media, Andrew. You're mute. You're on mute. There you go. Now we got you. Go ahead. Okay. You can't argue with those numbers, Roland. And I think that, you know, we're getting to a place where it's just no longer acceptable not to invest in our community and in our media companies. So, um, I mean, what I want to see um, with this bill and other bills like it is, you know, there's a proliferation of other black news channels. Um, I want us to see this go mainstream. I want to see, um, your, you know, your show, you have iHeartRadio, and I know that um, over time, this is something that maybe we can move over to cable like we had back in the day, um, that there's just more opportunities for us because no one's really telling our perspective and telling our story. You talked a little bit earlier about the advertising dollars, and we know about black buying power. We know how powerful our community is, um, but our stories still are not being told 
you know, on mainstream platforms. Well, and again, here's the deal. I, I'm not, I'm, I, I ain't worried about mainstream platforms, okay? Because bottom line is, I'm not trying to ask y'all, y'all please get the breaking news banner ready. The Supreme Court's ruling has come in. Uh, uh, but, but here's my whole point. My whole point is, I completely stand with Congresswoman Val Demings on the ownership piece. The other piece for me is, is to get the ad money. As Frank Lucas says, I'm going to get that money. That's the deal. So here's the piece. If, if Just imagine, if we go in one year, let's say you take the billion dollars a year, if black media goes from $10 million a year, Amisha, to let's just say 15% of the 1 billion, that's going from 10.1 million a year to 150 million. Right. That, right. That, that, that changes the ball game. That, that literally alters, that alters um, what we're able to do. Amisha, go ahead. It not only changes the ball game, and you spoke about this earlier, but it also gives you that extra capacity, and that capacity is needed because there are so many stories. Um, we we saw the the breaking news just last last night about the um, uh, sadly about the, the the young man who um, who was executed. I think that there are so many stories of, of of people who have been sentenced to death row who don't need to be there. There are so many stories of of various things that are happening in our community, from economic development to housing, infrastructure, things that matter to African Americans. Americans across this country where you would need somebody on the ground, someone invested in those communities to have those conversations, to bring that news back, to expand across multiple digital platforms. That ad buy makes a difference. I think that for a lot of members of our community, the idea is, you know, when you start your own media piece, when you're, you know, when, you, when you're advertising, when you're showcasing on Facebook, when you have these streams like you do, Roland, that all is fine and dandy because things are great. And I think that there's a lot missing in terms of understanding of what it takes to make that work, what it takes and how much staff capacity you need, what it takes to bring these types of stories that are often, you know, left out of other media sources to the people. And that, that's that's what that money is necessary for. That's what that type of infrastructure builds towards, making sure that these stories are told, making sure that the individuals needed to build that capacity to share these stories to the audience that needs to hear them most is there, making sure that you have everybody equipped with the with the right tools and understanding of the things that they should be reaching out to their Congress people about, the things that they should be talking to their mayors, governors, and other state elected officials about. Those things many people wouldn't even know, um, aside from having a black media source that drives the attention to them. So I definitely think that, you know, this is something that isn't talked about enough, but I'm so thankful that you're raising the alarm for it because black people and black media has been cut out for so long when it comes to advertising dollars. And it's something that we just should not, um, we, sh we should be demanding change and something that we should not be quiet about anymore. Absolutely. All right, folks, uh, the breaking news. Uh, <laughs> the idiotic lawsuit filed by the dumbass attorney general in Texas, Ken Paxton, uh, signed on by 17 other attorneys generals in these red states, signed on by 126 dumbass Republicans in the House of Representatives, has been completely rejected by the U.S. Supreme Court. Go to my iPad, please. Texas versus Pennsylvania. The state of Texas's motion for leave to file a bill of complaint is denied for lack of standing under Article 3 of the Constitution. Texas has not demonstrated a judicially cognizable interest in the manner in which another state conducts its elections. All other pending motions are dismissed as moot. Statement of Justice Alito, with whom Justice Thomas joins. In my view, we do not have discretion 
to deny the filing of a bill of complaint in a case that falls within our original jurisdiction. See Arizona versus California, 589. Uh, I would therefore, now, uh, here's the deal. Now you got, uh, I guess, I think this is Clarence Thomas. Let's see, let's see. Well, these two, first of all, it says here, I would therefore grant the motion to file the bill of complaint, but would not grant other relief, and I express no view on any other issue. Robert Patillo, uh, attorney, joins us right now. Robert, um, first of all, what the hell is what the hell does that mean? Explain it to the folk, <laughs> to play to the folk who not lawyers. Okay, well, well, the simplest way to to explain it is, so Justice Alito and Justice Thomas dissented from the uh, majority opinion, which was an unsigned opinion. Uh, so the, the court ruled, uh, so seven of the justices ruled that the state of Texas does not have standing, as in they do not have the ability, they do not have the right, they are not a complainant um, to file a suit against these other states based upon their uh, internal state electoral processes. Uh, so before getting to the arguments about Section 3, to the arguments about the Elector's Clause, um, to the release which was sought by the president, um, they're setting down very clear precedents that states cannot interfere in the electoral processes of other states. So I think that's the most important part of the ruling. Uh, secondarily, the fact that we, we've gone through these judicial confirmation proceedings and Donald Trump has gotten three justices confirmed to the Supreme Court and all three of those justices voted against the lawsuit. Uh, Amy Coley Bryant, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch joined John Roberts uh, and the majority opinion, though the uh, is unauthored. And the fact there's only a paragraph that they released uh, that they released shows just how slight of a legal basis or no lack of legal basis there was for this to go forward. Um, <laughs> basically, the Supreme Court just said uh, Trump and all y'all Republicans who wants to overturn this here kiss our collective ass. I wouldn't say that. What what they are uh, what they are saying, however, is that this is not a case in controversy which is right for adjudication before the Supreme Court. Um, the Supreme Court has original jurisdiction over uh, conflicts between states, so it's normally water rights, so electrical use, uh, border disputes, those sorts of things. The, the Supreme Court is saying that this isn't even a dispute that they can rule on because there is no dispute here. There is no underlying case for them to argue about, and therefore the state of Texas does not have. There's no controversy between. Texas and Georgia. There's no controversy between Texas and Pennsylvania, and they're just not even standing there in order to file a lawsuit. So before even getting to the starting blocks, um, there's no ability of this court to even exert, uh, uh, exert original jurisdiction over the matter. Here's, so here's what I love, the line. <laughs> go, Y'all, go back to my iPad, please. I love this one right here. Texas has not demonstrated a judicially cognizable interest in the manner in which another state conducts its elections. Basically what they're saying is, what the hell y'all talking about? Y'all can't, y'all y'all ain't got no damn voice in what Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania does in their elections, just like they ain't got no voice in what you do in your damn state. You're absolutely right about that. Remember, there's, it's uh, prescribed by the Constitution that states set their own electoral processes. This is why you can have five states where they do uh, mail-in voting uh, for the last 30 years. You have other states where uh, you have very different rules. The part of the Texas lawsuit which made the least amount of sense uh, was this concept or, or this argument they were trying to put forward that because there are differences in electoral processes uh, county to county in each state, um, therefore that would uh, that would mean that the case would be completely over 
overturned if another state did not like the electoral process in your state. And then the relief that was sought by the uh, by the Texas AG is the uh, the most hilarious part because they wanted to send the uh, send the uh, election back to the state legislatures in those states. So not even for the voters to have a say in it, but for the state legislature to overturn the will of the voter and appoint their own electors. And then the idea of being in a state like Georgia, where you have a constitutional majority for Republicans in the House and the Senate and the governor's mansion, that they would just appoint uh, Republican electors to vote for Trump, thereby uh, effectively overturning the election. What the Supreme Court has done is set down clear precedents that they are not going to be used as a political tool, uh, even if you did appoint three of the justices on the court, and even if you do have um, a six-to-three uh, six conservative majority, they're not going to be used as a tool of any political party to settle these disputes. So we may have a far more fair court than we expected coming out of this. And President Trump clearly um, anticipated this when he rushed through uh, his judicial nominate, uh, nominees because he thought that this is how it will be decided and they will vote in his favor. Basically, they also said, Trump, your ass lost the election for the 100th time. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, Joe Biden has won this election more times than I think any president in American history. We've had recounts. We've had close votes. Um, this was not a close election. People have to remember that. that this was the election decided by 7 million votes. Uh, we're talking about 53 percent of the of the vote went to Biden. Uh, even in the Electoral College, it's, we're talking about uh, 308 electors, something along those lines, 306 or 308 electors versus 232 uh, for Donald Trump. Uh, it, it, simply put, there is no way to read this other than as a landslide victory for Joe Biden. And this was officially the end of the end. All 50 states this week have certified the electoral results, including West Virginia, who's the last one to send their in, well, theirs in. The election is over. Joe Biden's the president-elect just as he was five weeks ago. Um, and there's really no nowhere else for President Trump to go as he tries to overturn the election. Uh, so what that really means is pack your ish and get the hell out. It's over. I, I I think that was the clear that's the clear mandate of the people. And, and remember, we haven't really had a mandate that many times uh, in, in the last 20 years of American politics, whether it's Bush v. Gore being close in 2000, um, Bush v. Kerry was close in 2004. Uh, President Obama even barely beat uh, Mitt Romney in many ways in 2012. Of course, 2016 was a razor-thin election. Uh, this is a clear mandate for Joe Biden going forward. All right, Robert Tiller, we appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Lauren, I made the point uh, to Congressman Val Demons. I don't want to hear a damn thing from not now. 126 Repo House Republicans. I don't want to hear D Dan Crenshaw, kiss my ass. Uh, Jim Jordan, kiss my ass. Kevin McCarthy, kiss my ass. All of them. I don't want to hear nothing about law and order, the Constitution, <laughs> democracy, doing the right thing. Uh, not nothing. These these leeches <coughs> have absolutely sold themselves, sold their soul to Donald Trump, and none of the on, uh, only a handful of Republicans had the guts to say, "Man, go on with that bullshit. We ain't signing that damn amicus brief. We're not going to embarrass ourselves with that." Yeah, and we have to pay really close attention to who signed on, the 126 uh, House Republicans, the 18 attorney generals around the country, because anyone who signed on to this, this is this is into the realm of treason. This is into the realm of uh, defying your oath with regard to uh, the Constitution. I mean, 
Basically, what has happened here is because of the election of Barack Obama, there is a segment of the Republican Party who has decided to, def to basically ignore reality. And they're ignoring reality because they are the cult of one thing, which is being in control and being in power. Donald Trump has become their cult leader, and they have decided to ignore details, ignore facts, ignore the truth, and now ignore the Constitution. They tried to overthrow an election. I mean, that's what this is. And we need to take very clear focus on the 126 people in serving in the U.S. House that, was a part, that were a part of this and the attorney generals that were a part of this around this country. The election is going to be officially certified in three days. Uh, there's nothing uh, that's going to stop that. And yet they still did this, and why? To impress Donald Trump and, I guess, his followers who are their constituents, I guess. But it is a scary moment, even though it's good that the Supreme Court did what they did. It's a pretty scary moment to think that we have that many people serving the federal government uh, and in state government who actually believed that this was somehow okay. And this is why you have to fight and not get complacent about these people, because they will do right. what they can get away with. They will do what they can get away with. Yeah, and, and Andrew, that's the real deal here. K uh, Caitlin Collins uh, with um, CNN, she posted this. She's put on Twitter. She said, quote, uh, several Republicans who signed their names to the amicus brief for the Texas lawsuit understood it would likely quickly be shot down by the Supreme Court and only viewed it like many other things in Trump's world as a loyalty test. But Trump told people he thought he'd prevail. Andrew. I don't give a damn what they thought. These idiots cannot be trusted ever again. <laughs> ever right. I mean, again. Roland, Roland, you're right. I mean, all this talk of democracy, the will of the voters, the will of the people. I mean, th this is painful to see. I think that, you know, there's a lot of these, you know, 127 House Republicans and attorneys generals that signed on to this have lost so much credibility. You know, in another country, in another world, we would call this a coup. Um, I think a lot of Republicans really need to ask themselves, you know, are you more loyal to this president or maybe the job you may have later or the people who elected you? And um, there's just a lot of lost credibility on this. It doesn't make any sense. Put me in the camp with Jeb Bush and everyone else that says that this is crazy and killed on arrival and shouldn't be what the party stands for. It, it's absolutely insane. And if the shoe were on the other foot, and Democrats were doing this. I mean, you already know how what the response. Oh, of course, Amisha, uh, go to my iPad, y'all. This is the list. This, this is the list. Actually, this is only uh, this is only a hundred and six. Twenty more idiots added their name to this list. Uh, then you throw in uh, the 18 attorneys generals. Then you throw in the other people out there, these other group, uh, Eric Erickson, big time right wing conservative. Uh, there was this other group who posted uh, that idiot evangelical Tony Perkins and others. He said uh, there are many friends of mine on this list. They're embarrassing themselves. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, it's interesting to hear some conservatives say it, but I think that we somewhat miss a point with assuming that these people either don't know what they're doing or that they don't understand what's at stake here. Oh, they know. Uh, quite frankly, Quite frankly, many of the people who signed their names onto this amicus brief are people who are in districts where they were going to be loved and they consider to be Trump loyalists anyway. So they will get reelected. Um, the most important and the most vital thing here is that there is, there has been, and there I don't think is going to turn back, there is an ultimate shift in the Republican Party. You have a handful of people who are stalwart Republicans, who are Reagan era Republicans, who are, you know, common sense Bush era Republicans, and you have a whole hell of a lot of people who are Trump Republicans. And 
that just is what it is. They've seen the rallies. They've seen the level of esteem. They've seen the level of like following. They've seen the hellified strong levels of fundraising dollars that he has had during this shakedown and this scam. And they are excited by it. They know that the lid has come out and you can't put these people back in the box. At the end of the day, this is where America is right now. Regardless of the fact that we have this new coming of, of Biden and Kamala Harris, you still have a lot of people who are, you know, hook, line and sinker in on Trump rhetoric Trump policies and the understanding that he's not going to go away anytime too soon. And I think that what we have here are elected officials who have ours in front of their name, who are so vested in Trumpism that they're going to keep it going no matter what. In fact, Absolutely. Fanning the flames on misinformation. Remember all the rallies and the number of people who were who caught COVID at these rallies and died. You know, they're still having holiday parties. It's just, it's just, it's just con it's a cognitive dissonance between, you know, one part of the country is trying to battle the coronavirus and the other part of the country is throwing parties. Like, I don't understand in what world where that makes sense. You can say that you're... And here's the deal. This conservative action project. Conservatives call on state legislators to appoint new electors in accordance with the Constitution. Y'all, I want everybody. I want, no, 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 go back. I want everybody. I want everybody to see this here. This is what these idiots wrote. And I want y'all to look at the names. It says, the evidence overwhelmingly shows officials in key battleground states as the result of a coordinated pressure campaign by Democrats and allied groups, violated the Constitution, state and federal law, and changing mail-in voting rules that resulted in unlawful and invalid certifications of Biden victories. There is no doubt President Donald J. Trump is a lawful winner of the presidential election. Joe Biden is not president-elect. Look at these names. I, I, I want all y'all to look at them. That idiot from uh, Judicial Watch, Thomas Fitton. That idiot, Tony Perkins from the Family Research Council. If you see them, cuss them out. You have my permission. Um, you got that idiot, Brent Bozell, Media Research Center. You've got idiot, Ken Blackwell, okay, former Secretary of State of Ohio. The list goes on and on and on. David Bossy, yeah, that fool, Citizens United, all of them. Gary Bauer, uh, yep, uh, former congressman, yep, screw him too. Uh, you can just keep going. Look at all these names. All these people here uh, should never, ever be put on television, listened to ever again, because they are absolutely stuck on stupid. Every single one of them. I'm going to show all their names before I move on, because, folks, this is the moment. And this is why I keep saying, Joe Biden, stop all that nonsense, how we can get along with them and how we can sit here and work with them. No, you can't work. Lauren, you can't work with none of these people. These and people, these people say. literally wanted to overthrow an election. They wanted right. to launch a coup. This is a failed coup attempt in the United States. They should be treated for, for sedition, for treason. And that should be the discussion. That should be where the discussion begins. Uh, I really cannot believe this whole effort to try and reach out. At some point, the Democratic Party has to understand, you're not dealing with the mainstream moderate Republican Party of the Reagan era or the Bush Republican Party. You're dealing with some other iteration of Republican, which I actually do not think represents the majority of the Republican Party. But they are willing to go off the cliff of ending our democracy to have control. 
And their featuring argument in this moment was basically, because black voters decided this election, this thing is invalid. Because that group of people decided this election, Biden's election is invalid. That effectively was their underlying argument. They had targeted black votes that had decided this election and decided that, well, this is invalid because they effectively picked the next president. Uh, you know, it, it, that and their misinformation campaign, their willingness to completely lie, their willingness to completely ignore facts and, and, and sort of just make up reality should, should tell you that there is no negotiation here because you're not dealing with people who are accepting facts. They're, they've just made up their own reality and they're doing what they want to do. And I'm, so, I'm really surprised that Joe Biden has not figured that out yet because he's going to it's figure it out January 20. It's really fascinating, Roland. I mean, when Republicans are in charge, it's hit the gas full steam ahead on, you know, everything from Supreme Court justices to the federal courts. And now um, that Biden and Kamala Harris are um, going to be in the White House, it's like, well, we need to get more moderate agency directors and cabinet officials. And, you know, certain people might not be palatable to the Republican Party, which I find fascinating because um, how many Democrats, you know, served in the Trump administration and how many Democrats, you know, partnered with Trump on anything. Trump didn't, wasn't trying to um, build a coalition that looked like the country. So um, I, I've been really, it's really interesting some of the picks that Biden has. And I think they're very, um, you know, very moderate voices or people that are tested uh, when there could have been other people that were kind of coming through the ranks that might've been more effective. Well, but again, that's how that that's this dumb game Democrats play. Just like, right. okay, you never ever see Republicans say, "Yeah, we're going to entertain appointing conservatives, Republicans to our cabinet." They're like, "Hell no, we're going to appoint damn, we're going to appoint damn Republicans." <laughs> Only Democrats get stuck on stupid with that. Oh, let's have Why somebody. Why do that? Let's have somebody. Why but, but, they do because that? because here's the deal: Democrats want to play by the rules. No, we have rules and norms. Damn that. Here's my deal. If I'm in a if I'm sitting in a boxing match, all right, and the person I'm fighting picks up a two by four and swings it at me, I'm not gonna say no. I'm gonna buy by the rules of boxing. No, I'm gonna grab a two by four and beat your ass. That's what I'm gonna do. I mean, we see it all the time, Roland. I mean, Democrats they almost lost the House. How does that happen? You know, state legislative seats, they lost hundreds of state legislative seats when redistricting the census is going to come on. Like, is anybody thinking about that? It's called um, it's called when you play nice. I don't believe in playing nice. Again, Michelle Obama said when they go low, we go high. No, when they go low, we go lower. You kneecap them. You stab. I mean, do you want to win no, or not? you kneecap them. You stab them in the ankles. You slice the bottom of their feet. You cut their toes off. If they go lower than that, Dang, fine. Right. Hell yeah. Right. If they hit you in the knee, you cut off their damn ankles. If they go up to your ankles, you slice their feet. You go Maybe lower you and consult, lower. You need to cut the NC in the game trip so they can get it level. together. They're not even on the level of the ordinary rules. These are people that are talking outside of our democracy. They're ignoring the Constitution at this point. So and right, that, and, that, and you treat them accordingly. Right. That's no, what yeah, you do. I agree. Those are people you can't necessarily work with. There are, and I, I no, no, you said not necessarily. You said, Amisha, Amisha, you said not necessarily. <laughs> no, you can't we're work at a, with we're them. At a point where we're at a point where conservatives are eating their own. 
<laughs> well, we're, we're watching that happen live, where you have state elected officials going against county elected officials and this huge break between those who are Trumpisms and those who are not. And I, I think that for Joe Biden, this is a difficult space to play in. One, because there's still a high level of control from conservatives. So let's not pretend like there's a supermajority on the Hill of Democrats right now. There is not. Um, there were some significant losses from um, the Democratic Party when it came to those congressional seats. We're still waiting to see what's going to happen uh, with, with those two seats in Georgia for the Senate. Uh, there, there are some things that Democrats have to understand because we don't necessarily have the same type of playing game that uh, Donald Trump did coming in in 2016. Hey. He did have a lot more conservatives on his side and conservative control. We're not necessarily seeing that as Democrats right now. I think that part of that is the fact that Democrats haven't taken the bull by the horns. They have not been able to, by and large, uh, adapt to some of the more progressive tones because of a fear that they would isolate certain white voters, which I think was an erroneous fear at best. But I do believe that, you know, for, for, for Joe Biden, that this may be somewhat of a challenge because he is very used to reaching across the aisle and trying to build those bridges when right now, hell, those bridges are blown that, up. That, 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 that world's gone. I'm telling you right now, look, how, how many of y'all seen the movie The Equalizer, part, Equalizer 1 and 2? No. Y'all seen The Equalizer? I have not. I'll check it, though. Lauren, you ain't seen The Equalizer? What the hell wrong with you? Yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen it. What the hell wrong yeah, with you? Denzel Washington. Antoine Fuqua directed. This is, this is one of his signature moves in there. When he get ready to kill people, he click his, <laughs> he click his timer and see how fast he can kill everybody in the room. If I'm Joe Biden, come January 20th, I'm going to do this here. Click. Right. Then I'm going to sit here and take everybody out. And what I love about Denzel in movie, he take folks out and then he look at them. He take them out and then he look at them. That's what Democrats got to do, okay? You are going up, up against pure evil. You are going up against people who are sick and demented, who do not believe in the rule of law. You must treat them accordingly. You cannot treat them with niceness. You cannot treat them with kindness. You cannot invite them over for tea and crumpets. You cannot say, come on by for coffee and drinks. What you must do is obliterate them. You must destroy them. You must rip their hearts out. You must steal. Oh, oh. No, no, Andrew, because guess what? That's exactly what Mitch McConnell did to Obama when he only moved eight eight federal judges in 2016 when he blocked Merrick Garland for 10 months. They don't give a damn about anything. And I'm saying, Democrats, damn this, let's return to normalcy. No, that day is gone. It's time. What did I say three years ago? And what did I say this year? This means war. We come back. I'm going to talk to you. Know, I'm gonna, can we, hold on one second. We come back. I'm going to talk to the Michigan legislator who's been getting death threats because she basically said the same thing to conservatives. Come after me. Y'all going to pay. We talk to her next on Roller Martin Unfiltered. Trump can show up and say anything, and they can just go, oh, yeah. And the African-American community was great to us. They didn't vote. You know, he just called you stupid. Did you hear that? Oh, 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 but he's for us. Really? And they were just regurgitating the things that they had heard on a radio or in the barbershop or something somebody had told them. They hadn't thought about it. Democracy is uh, in danger because people don't know how to think. I'm done with trying to convince people to try to vote for their, you know, for their for their life. You have to run for your life. I'm gonna go try to get people who are open to it and, and, and lead them. I'm done with hope. Fuck hope, fight. And I come to ask you to go all out. Just see what a power you can be. 
Let us march on ballot boxes. That is to go out to vote. For this is the way we are going to straighten up the South and the nation. Let us march on ballot boxes. Two men and women will no longer walk the streets in search for jobs that do not exist. Walk together, children. Don't you get weary. One day, Georgia will be a better state. This is our Georgia, where the ordinary accomplished the extraordinary. And a new American story was written. This is our Georgia. We don't wait for change. We are the change. We keep climbing to the mountaintop and always set another seat at the table of brotherhood. This is our Georgia. We honor the sacrifices of the past, carry their work forward. Because democracy doesn't stand still, it must be protected, fought for, practiced every day. Let us march on ballot boxes until brotherhood is more than a meaningless word at the end of a prayer, but the first order of business on every legislative agenda. Let us march on ballot boxes. Every voice counts. Every vote counts. Every voice. Every voice must be heard. Must be heard. This is my future. This is my Georgia. This is my Georgia. This is my Georgia. This is my Georgia. How about you? Are you in? Are you in? socially distant, ready to mask up. On our way to Pennsylvania, we'll be there for two days, and then we're headed to Ohio to Cleveland. We're going to be just spreading a lot of love and building a lot of power. For the very last day, we're going to be out here on the ground in these streets because our people need us. Can't stop, won't stop. Register to vote. You can even request your online vote-by-mail ballot by clicking the link or by scanning our QR code with your camera. Vote early. Vote today, because we got power. Crazy, deranged, demented, sadistic, evil Republicans have been targeting officials in Michigan. Well, one legislator in Michigan had enough, and she posted this on Facebook. So this is just a warning to you Trumpers. Man, roll it. Walk lightly. We ain't playing with you. Enough of the shenanigans. Enough is enough. And for those of you 
who are soldiers, you know how to do it. Do it right. Be in order. Make them pay. Well, that did not sit well with folks in Michigan. State Representative Cynthia Johnson uh, has been stripped of her committee assignments, which include her position on the House Oversight Committee after posting that video to Facebook. She joins us right now. Uh, first and foremost, um, what did your fellow colleagues say? Uh, did they say that you were calling on folks to be killed? Did they, what did they say in stripping you of, of, of your assignments? Well, thank you, first of all, for inviting us onto your show. Uh, I never received a phone call from the um, Republicans, Speaker of the House, or uh, in regards to why they were stripping me from my committees. Uh, and that's as they pretty much said, I'm, I'm, I talk too much and I, and I should apologize. Are you? Hell no. <laughs> and why are you not going to apologize? I'm not going to apologize. I, 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 I'm not a slave. Our people are not slaves. We belong. I'm not going to apologize because those words that I used, I meant, I meant them. And I just don't understand why are we still here? I know why we're still here. Why are we still talking about this when the elections have already been certified? Mm -hmm. You know, this is about Trump. He needs to be tried with treason. I mean, you know, we have so many things that we have to do. I can't even really help my constituents. I have people reaching out to our office needing stimulus dollars. I have people who are homeless. There's one resident of mine who was who was about to uh, be evicted. I had to ask my staff, stop everything. Even though we were going through all of this, make sure this woman doesn't get evicted. So... You know, here, here we have black businesses that are being disenfranchised, yet we have to continue to, to go uh, down this rabbit hole. This is crazy stuff. So, no, I, I will not apologize uh, for anything that I have said. My office has received over 7,000 emails. They can't even do their work. They can't even really help the constituents. They're trying, and I, I want to say hats off to my staff, both Tanae Hankins and Abigail Klumperens. They have been amazing, just wonderful. And uh, enough really is enough. Ex we're, we're not putting up with this. Explain it. We're, we're not going to continue to put up with the bullshit. Explain to my audience, uh, you talk about those phone calls. Uh, folks have been saying you should be lynched, you should be killed. What, what, kind of other, what, 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 what other stuff have they been saying? And did the Republican Speaker of the House address any of that? Offer you security? Offer your staff security? No, not one time. Not one time. But I'll tell you what, the FBI is very involved. 
my local authorities, local Detroit, very involved. Uh, the Capitol Police, very involved. So, but but as far as as uh, the leadership is the Republican leadership, not one time did they call to say, "What can we do to help you?" You know, they 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 haven't even put out a statement. Uh, the only statement that they put out to say that all of those attacks on me are wrong, all of those attacks on you are uh, racist, they're wrong, they, they shouldn't do it, they shouldn't talk about putting crosses on your, on your, uh, on your grass, uh, but you shouldn't have said what you said. I had the audacity, a black woman, I had the audacity to question white men and white women. How dare you question us, Miss Cynthia A. Johnson? Who do you think you are? You're an uppity nigga. That's what I've been told. Mm. But I do I care about whether or not what you think of me? I don't care what you think of me. But you're going to do right by my people. The gov- we're gonna stop all this bullshit in 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 the in the in the Democratic Party, the leadership, and I don't know who was that that person who said one thing about the Democratic Party is that they placate to white people. They do. The Democratic Party also placates because they're concerned about their constituents. We, how about this, everybody? How about we just all do the right? thing for all of our constituents. How about if we put out a, uh, 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 how about we just take a stance against wrong? How about that? How about we just take a stance against domestic terrorism and domestic violence? Because this situation right here is very much like a domestic violence situation. How a woman she says something and she and 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 her husband or boyfriend doesn't like it. He choke her and then say, "You made me do it." Well, no, I'm not shutting up, and I'm just asking all of us to take pause, take pause. We're we've got to work together. If we have never ever worked together. This is one thing that we can universally uh, work together on. And, 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 and if I hear one more black person tell, tell me, well, you shouldn't have said that. You don't dictate to, I'm, you, I, I don't have any control over how you think my words may hurt you. Or how, uh, uh, if you are not sure about what the words are, why don't you ask me? But I didn't even find out until what? Two two days ago, two o'clock in the morning, I didn't even find out why these people were going, losing their damn minds. I didn't realize that that video that I had done was cut up and and edited and and added that that we were after white people. This is crazy stuff. But you know who are we dealing with? We deal with the same people who are listen, who's listening to a president who have had babies snatched away from their parents, 
some children right now. I bet you we don't even know where they are. We have a president, a president who have literally abducted children from their parents. Here's a man who will lie on a 20, 30,000 times. A day, a minute, maybe. But um, we, we have work to do. And, and this is not new. We all here, we know this is not new. But now we have the opportunity. We have the opportunity to come together and work collectively. And I am encouraging all of us to uh, let's just work together with each other. I, I think I, I meant to say, um, well, no, I, I, I'm done with that. Where are you? I can't even see your face. Oh, I'm in my studio. So you must be joining I can't us. Even see. Yeah, you must be joining us via FaceTime. Yeah, yeah I so am. so what we have is we have you uh routed through our control room. So yeah, you can't see me, but trust me, the audience can see you. They can see the both of us. So we're all good. So okay. uh well look, we certainly appreciate you joining us. Keep giving them hell, uh, keep representing the constituents, uh, and uh and of course, and we'll keep doing what we're doing. That's been unapologetically black every single day. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I love y'all. I appreciate it. Thank you so very much. All right, folks, uh, always covering uh, different uh, news left and right. Uh, I told you earlier we had the video, of course, uh, of uh, Susan Rice when she uh, was announced today by Joe Biden to be the head of the White House Domestic Policy Council. Here's Congresswoman Marsha Fudge, her speech uh, leading HUD. Mr. President-elect, my good friend, Madam Vice President-elect, to my family, my friends, my sorority sisters, my constituents all, I thank you for the opportunity to join this remarkable team and work on behalf of people in every city and community to serve all those who are struggling and looking for the fair shot we all deserve. When I think about the enormity of the task ahead of us, I am reminded of the book of Matthew, where it is written, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. There is dignity and there is grace within every woman, every man, and every child in this nation, including those who live on the outskirts of hope, those who work hard but still struggle to make it work, and those who have no place to lay their head. It is one of the highest responsibilities of our government to see them, to see their dignity, and to lift them up. I remember the feeling I had as a kid of the safety, security, and peace of mind contained in one word, home. I remember the comfort of knowing that no matter what happened, I could always go home. But far too many Americans live without that feeling. More and more have had that comfort ripped away. The crisis of a pandemic that has threatened their lives, the crisis of a recession that has swallowed up jobs, hours, wages, and lifelines. The crisis of injustice that has forced communities of color to make it in America with one dream tied behind their back. Each crisis chips away at their hope, at the promise of our nation. But I believe that hope is on the way because I know 
that President-elect and Vice President-elect are building a team that is grounded in dignity. And our task at the Department of Housing and Human Develop Urban Development will be to stand up for the dignity of all Americans and deliver the promise of our nation to all those left out in the cold. We will take on the deep set roots of poverty and homelessness. We will fight for housing in every community that is affordable, decent, and safe. We will help more Americans secure the dream of home ownership to close the gaps of inequity, build wealth, and pass it on to their children. We will pursue creative development projects to shape our landscapes and skylines, restart the engines of cities that have stalled out, and launch new opportunities in hometowns across America. But perhaps most importantly of all, we will help people believe once again that their government cares about them, no matter who they are, that we understand their problems, as the president-elect often recalls his father's words. I am honored to have this chance to help restore the people's faith, to deliver for them and make them proud, and to build back better alongside this dedicated team. I thank you for the opportunity to serve. Go to our panel here, uh, Lauren. A lot of folks, uh, folks have been talking about, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, Biden, President-elect Biden, picking Tom Vilsack to be the agriculture secretary again. He served in that capacity for eight years. Uh, yes, the, uh, John Boyd with Black Farmers Association was on this show talking about what he did not do uh, to help um, to help Black farmers. Uh, Biden clearly uh, ignored all of that in picking him again. Uh, of course, uh, he also fired uh, Shirley Sherrod, later apologized for doing so uh, over an edited video from uh, from Breitbart. Um, to me, look, here's the deal. Biden clearly is going with him. To me, I say use this moment to, 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 to la lash into him and say, where your black plan to, to, to excise uh, a major, major black plan out of USDA and, and give him nothing but hell the moment he steps in? Yeah, and I think the fact that you have uh, Congresswoman Fudge right, uh, now going to HUD and you have Congressman uh, Cedric Richmond in the White House, hopefully going to the 7 a.m. meeting, uh, is a really important thing because they should be in communication with each other. You know, I, I, I'm not in any way trying to sort of downplay the importance of the uh, Department of Housing and Urban Development with regard to Congresswoman Fudge taking over. I think it's great that she's doing that because she's very centered around the least of these and uh, looking out for the people who uh, a person like Ben Carson could care less about and talk nothing about. And she will focus on homelessness and those issues. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but that budget in that department uh, at HUD is $47 billion. The budget at uh, the secretary, uh, the agriculture department is $146 billion. That matters. And to find Tom Vilsack back there is unbelievably crazy to me. <laughs> I mean, I, I know that this is like the third, uh, we, I know that they don't want to want to talk about this, but this is really actually the third, you know, Obama presidency because the third term, because we keep seeing his people pop up and now we're hearing about Patrick Gaspard going to labor. Uh, I, I think that it definitely matters which department, uh, you know, which person gets. It's not just a numbers game of Let's see how many black people get there. I, in my view, for African-Americans, the three uh, most important departments are, are DOJ, 
and and ag and um um help me Roland TOJ ag and uh, defense well, you know, defense is, is great. defense is good because of that huge budget. I'm not trying to say it's not, but I had a third one in mind that for some reason I'm having a senior moment not commerce? able to. Edu- education? Uh, not education, not commerce. It was a- another money one. A- treasury, a- a- treasury. HHS. Treasury. And Treasury's got the guy, the second, the deputy is after, he's Nigerian. But my, my point is, I want the money departments. I'm focused on the money departments. I'm focused on having somebody at the top of those departments who who centers poverty in a country where one out of every seven uh, Americans is in poverty and 28% of African Americans are in poverty. And and there's this sort of idea that nobody black can be at Treasury or nobody black can be at, at, at Ag. It's like there's certain departments that no one black can ever be at. But the Austin thing at DOD, your point is well taken, Roland, that is a big thing. That is not a minor thing at all. But as far as uh, Rep. Fudge is concerned, I think it would have been a hell of a lot more powerful to see her at, at Ag. I think, I think Biden is trying to appease someone in there. It's probably, it could be, could be his former boss, could be President Obama, but because we keep seeing his people pop up. I mean, McDonough at Vets Affairs, which makes no sense. Uh, people who have no expertise in that field. Like, remember, the argument against Fudge at Ag was, oh, she doesn't have the expertise at Ag. Well, then we see Gaspard and, and McDonough at, at uh, Vets Affairs. So that doesn't really make sense to me. Uh, so anyway, I just... Uh, it's not a terrible thing, but it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out with regard to specific policy. Again, I just think that, Amisha, bottom line is this here. Uh, look, Biden's going to pick who he picks, but our job is to go after every single one with our agenda. Exactly. I agree 100 percent. I don't think that I think it's futile to have an argument about his picks at this point. And we still have several that are outstanding that I would argue are very strong. And we, we I still want to see some African-American um, at, at the top of those. But I I feel like at this point, we have to be very, very strategic about um, our list of demands as black people. We have to make sure that our agenda, regardless of if the person who is the head of these agencies is black or white, has the black agenda in front of them and that we hold them accountable for it. We have to make sure that the Biden administration understands not only that we got them there because black people did like that. That's why he is going to be. That's why he is going to be inaugurated. We also have to make sure that we aren't just sitting around cheering as we did, you know, four years ago, well, eight years ago and four years prior to that, uh, making sure that our demands are heard, that our voices are heard, and that we have strategic agenda plans, not only for urban areas, but also for rural areas where Blacks happen to live, not only for our northern cities and midwestern areas, but also for those across the South. Uh, black people are not a monolith, and there are different things that Black people want, depending on where they live and the, and, and the different birds that they face across the nation. And I think that we have to be strategic in making those making our voices heard, but also have a plan of action. It should not just be that we want this black person in that seat because hell, we saw black people in certain um, in, in certain agency positions during the George W. Bush administration. We saw them during the Clinton administration. And to be honest, a lot of the black condition didn't increase in either one of those administrations. So we have to make sure that the policy meets us where we are and that yep. we, and that we are being intuitive in what we are demanding from these individuals. Yeah. Um, go right ahead, Andrew. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think one thing that's being lost in this is the toll on education. So many of our students, we know when schools open up, they're not opening up in our communities. Uh, a lot of our students, um, according to a McKinsey study, uh, white kids are already three months behind in math. Black kids are six months behind. 
So we're not talking about this lost generation of students that in many cases are having to learn virtually, you know, daycare centers in many cases are still closed so parents don't have the coverage. Um, women and other caregivers and parents, fathers are having to make difficult decisions about who's going to stay home with the kids. You know, it's gonna have an impact. And, you know, I think what I would like to see with some of these picks is just more of a story and a narrative. So much is on fire um, in terms of the federal government right now. Like where are you going to yep. put out the fires first beyond COVID? Folks talk about, we've, all emphasis obviously we talk about what's happening on the federal level. Obviously we have a new president coming in, folks, but uh, it's also important what's happening in our cities and in Baltimore. Uh, they are about, to, they have a new mayor coming in, dealing with, uh, after the disastrous um, administration of the previous uh, mayor, who is actually now sitting in federal prison. Brandon Scott uh, became Baltimore City's 52nd mayor during Tuesday's inaugural ceremony. The 36-year-old pledged to tackle Baltimore's gun violence, the rising number of COVID-19 cases in the city's eviction crisis. Uh, he joins us uh, right now. Mayor, how you doing? I'm doing, I'm good, brother. I'm good. Good to see you. It's been so a long time. I, 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 I got to start here. I, I had somebody who, uh, I saw a tweet. They said uh, he has got to have the best fro in all of politics in America. <laughs> well, I would agree. I would agree. <laughs> the fro fade is back. <laughs> Well, and look, now I know somebody out there watching, they'd be like, yo, Roland, seriously, you know, you want to open up with the mayor asking about his hair. But but here's a piece. I remember when Reverend, when Reverend Jackson was running for president, uh, Ron Walters, Dr. Ron Walters said, Jesse, if you cut your hair anymore, you're going to be bald. And the reality is black politicians have always uh, had to adjust the, who they are and adjust themselves in terms of hair, in terms of clothes in terms of all of those things to make themselves more palatable to white business leaders and to white voters as well. Uh, and so you being 36 and the hairstyle you have is making a statement unto itself. Yeah. And listen, I, and I do this because, uh, Roland, I heard this my whole life. I used to have braids. And when I was in college and I heard you got to cut it if you want to be successful, especially if you want to go into politics, you got to cut it. And what I did is I'll do things my way. Right. Uh, my hair. My hair is not who I am. My hair is just a part of me. And I do this for the young people. One of the first things thing I did the other day after getting sworn in was talk to some students. And I had a young man ask me, will I ever cut my hair? And I said, if I want to, but never let anyone tell you, you have to do something with your hair because you can wear your black natural hair anywhere you want. I've gotten to this point, Roland, without giving in to myself and who I am. This was the same thing when I, we talked before when I wore a Colin Kaepernick jersey on the council floor. People thought I had lost my mind. I said, no, I am very sane in my mind. I am going to be me. I am proud of who I am. I am proud of my heritage and you will respect me for who I am and my capability abilities and not judge me on something so trivial like hair. When we, we talk about the issues uh, Baltimore uh, is facing, you're dealing with housing, you're dealing with crime. But I dare say the most important thing you got to deal with uh, is trust. Uh, to have a mayor go to prison uh, for uh, getting reaping hundreds of thousands of dollars in books uh, that were never published. And then you had uh, a pre then another previous mayor, not 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 the one before her, but another previous mayor uh, who had to resign for the misuse of gift cards as well. I mean, so you got people there. Uh, you got people in the city who are saying, man, can we trust 
leaders not to be corrupt? Can we ha have them looking out for the interests of the citizens and not their own pocketbook? Yeah, and I think I know coming into this that this is going to be something that I have to focus on, rebuilding trust. But let me also be very clear, Roland. That's why the citizens of Baltimore elected me. They elected me because they've seen me grow up before their eyes. They know that I grew up in a neighborhood in Baltimore in Park Heights where the world descends on it for a Pre Preakness horse race. And every other day of the year, I wasn't even seen as human by my own city government, where I saw my first shooting before my 10th birthday. They know that they've seen me grow up and be a council person, be the council president, lead the largest anti-violence movement on the ground here in Baltimore, 300 men march, but also they've seen me be the person challenging the status quo, leading the council as we close those healthy holly loopholes, being the person that passed Baltimore's open data law, being someone that's always transparent, and being that person that they see, that they see at the community, that they see coaching their kids basketball and youth football games, that they know does not care about money. They know that the business interests that have been uh, influencing some of those mayors in the past and the things that happened with uh, Mayor Pugh, they don't like me because I will always do what's right, even when it's not right popular for me or popular for in the citizens. What's right for Baltimore is what I will do, just like yesterday when I announced those new restrictions. I mean, Wednesday when I announced those new restrictions. It's because I am about making Baltimore better. I could care less about how people think about what am I doing for myself. It's not about me. It's about the city that gave me the opportunity and my family the opportunity moving from the rural south as a first generation Baltimore to build Baltimore better for the generations to come, especially for black Baltimore. You had uh, Donald Trump um, eviscerating Baltimore, tr trashing uh, then Congressman Elijah Cummings. Um, and of course, Cummings took that, took that personally. Uh, you had uh, this Republican woman who ran against Kwaizen Fume again, saying the same thing, saying it's corrupt and the trash in the city. And, and, and that's one of the things that, I mean, as, as somebody whose parents um, were uh, community activists in, I mean, literally, you know, in our neighborhood, who, want, who started with cleaning up streets and tearing down uh, empty houses and overgrown lots and, and cleaning up trash, um, all of that goes to, uh, you know, how a city looks. And so, um, you know, what is your initial plan? I mean, obviously, you, you got big, you got big, big plans you want to have, but but you're also looking at something along those lines, saying, hey, uh, let, let's deal with how we look, uh, and then and then and, and focus on a, a citywide, uh, you know, a, a cleanup plan, uh, and focusing on, you know, how do we take these abandoned buildings and these empty homes and turn it into affordable housing. What exactly uh, are your uh, first plan your plans for the first six months, first year? Well, listen, Roland, I want everyone to hear me, hear me very clear. I am coming into a city government that is completely broken. We're talking about this is 2020, almost 2021, and our city government is still operating like it's 1999. We're behind. We have to build systems. What I am talking about this term for the long-term rolling is about foundational work. We have to build the foundation for how we can be the best version of ourselves. You don't go from being 0-16 to winning the Super Bowl the next year. But this is how you attack that from both a long-term and a short-term point of view. We, I actually, uh, before we had this recent surge in COVID, again, leading by example, I myself have been leading a group of volunteers 
every weekend going into the most dirtiest neighborhoods where the dumping things happen, where the mistrash is happening, to do it and clean it up myself in partnership with our Department of Public Works. We're going to continue to do those kind of things when it is safe for us to do them. We will also be doing the basic things of restarting of the recycling collection that was ended here in the city of Baltimore, making sure that we're modernizing our trash collection, going towards zero waste, because in a major city like Baltimore, it's unacceptable that in 2020, we don't have GPS route makers for our solid waste workers. We have to put those things in place so that we can do those simple things for the citizens. When you talk about affordable housing and our vacants, it's about making sure that we are uh, uh, getting those properties out of the hands of these slum lords and folks who have held on to them for decades and decades, getting them into the hands of either the city or people who want to build, renovate them, knock them down, build new affordable housing, expanding on the work that we've done with this new plan. We actually, when I was on the council, we passed a $20 million uh, increase to our affordable housing trust fund. Now we're at the implementation stage and what we will do in Baltimore, the birthplace of inequity legislation is lead by enforcing my equity law that I passed and making sure that we're doing those investments in the neighborhoods that have been left behind on purpose. Doing that intentionally, building them up from a housing standpoint, from a health standpoint, making sure the city is spending its money there so that we can see how we're going to bring those neighborhoods back. Um, question from my panelists uh, who are with us, Amisha and Lauren Victoria Burke. I'll start with, uh, I'll start with Amisha Cross first. Make sure your question well, for the uh, mayor of Baltimore. Absolutely. Uh, first off, congratulations. Um, I think that the issue of trust is one that is very paramount. Paramount. Obviously, you're one of the youngest mayors that Baltimore has ever seen. Um, I think that with that comes its own its own power and strengths, but it also comes with sometimes some downsides as well. Um, in terms of the anticipation uh, of, of building up the economy, making sure that you know post COVID nineteen, there are people who have faith in the healthcare system in Baltimore and all of the issues with the education system. Uh, what are some of your top priorities, and how do you plan on um, actually making sure that you're not uh, someone who has all the protesters out in the street in the next few months as well, because there's a lot that needs to happen in Baltimore and the stakes are really high. Yeah, thank you for that question, Amisha. And I think uh, it's it's funny. I was la laughing because I know Roland saw some of my competitors uh, uh, during the general election, and they were pointing out the fact that I was actually out with the protesters. And I think that's the, the critical thing. When I've been a part of that, I was an activist here. I led protests in Baltimore City. I actually led a march from Baltimore to D.C. where we walked and did a protest, right? So having those relationships where people can trust us. If you look at my transition committee, it is the most diverse that people have ever seen because I'm putting activists in the room with business leaders and forcing them to work out those issues. But when you think about education, for, some, for example, in Baltimore, we're talking about Maryland, the wealthiest state and the wealthiest country in the history of the world. And our state has never fully funded our schools. For example, here in Baltimore alone, we know, according to the state, they owe us $300 million a year. We have the biggest policy decision in our state facing us when our General Assembly comes back. And that's overriding our governor's short-sighted veto of the blueprint for Maryland's future. That will put hundreds of millions of dollars into our school system and billions of dollars into school system across Maryland. Being there to help make sure that that is overridden is the one of the top priorities for us because we cannot properly educate our young people 
for the 21st century if we are not fully funding our schools. When you think about the business community, and this is what I've tasked my folks of understanding of how we want to operate. Our city has been a city that is only focused on trying to get the big fish, the next shiny business that's going to come in and save us. When we know in our heart of hearts, and if you look at economic data from across the world and across the country, where you get your job and economic growth is supporting the small and medium-sized businesses that you have here and in Baltimore, that specifically has to mean you have to do that for black businesses that have been left behind. I know that personally as my family runs one here in the city and for generations have not had the opportunities that their counterparts have, we will start to make those investments so that we know that people who own and operate these businesses are hiring people from our community providing opportunities for those re-entering in our community and making sure that we're synchronizing with our education system in an equitable way to move forward. Mom, Victoria Burke. Uh, I wonder, uh, Mayor Scott, uh, honored to talk to you. Uh, you know, when I go to major cities, uh, I'm from New York, and uh, I spend a little bit of time in Richmond, Virginia, a little bit of time in Brooklyn, and I go through Baltimore frequently for this and that. I just wonder what your plan is or what your thoughts are. How do these cities, particularly a city like Baltimore, how do you turn around neighborhoods that are kind of, you know, have the abandoned properties, abandoned storefronts? It almost feels like it's so entrenched in so many of these cities. Uh, and what's your view of what can turn that around? Is it private-public partnership? Is it an investment from the government? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I think I think it's a mixture of all of the above, right? We have a program here of vacancy to value that has been successful, but like many things, it has not been updated and changed since its exception in 2010, and now we're in 2020. When you think about Baltimore, you think about it as a city of 600,000 people or a little less, right? But we have housing stock for a million. We have so many of those vacant properties, many of it which are never going to be habitable again. It's a mixture. We have to, again, and this is where the part partnership comes in. Because when you have blocks of houses, if there's 10 uh, houses on one block and five of them are owned by the same person and we're trying to go through our court system at the state to get them in receivership, we shouldn't have to go five different times. We should be able to do that all at once so that we can get that in the hands of someone. We have had partnership with our state through Project Core and other things to get demolition money. We need more of that. As we go into a new federal administration, we're going to be talking with our federal delegation, uh, Cong Senator Cardin, Senator Van Hollen, to make sure that they understand we need the federal government, HUD, and other folks to be a part of that. Because because this is about not just building a new Baltimore as they've been trying to do and, and build it for people that are not here and definitely do not look like us, but this is also about making sure that we are providing that opportunity. And this is what, where the equity portion comes in. We see some of that work and there's great work going on here in Baltimore. If you go to East Baltimore where they filmed The Wire, they are now selling houses for $225, $250 in a neighborhood where you could get a house for seven, $8,000 uh, when I was 20, 25 years old. But that has to be expanded upon. They have great work happening in the Johnson Square neighborhood where they are now taking people community-based supported development, where they're taking people who are renting in a city where they're renting $1,200, $1,300 and putting them into home ownership where they pay $800, $900. And think about the opportunity for Baltimore, our proximity to D.C. When you think about the Mark Station that we have in West Baltimore, think about that access where we could actually build up and support black neighborhoods, getting black folks here, black folks who are coming from other places like D.C. to Baltimore. We have to do that in a very constant 
concentrated way, but it's going to take partnership, city, state, federal, and private folks to be a part of that. Some of that work is beginning, but you need a mayor that really wants to invest in it and not let folks dictate that only investment can happen in areas around the water or only happen in white neighborhoods. It can and will happen in our neighborhoods as well. Mayor Brandon Scott, we certainly appreciate it, sir. Thank you so very much. I uh, certainly look forward to uh, having you back on the show. Uh, let me know anytime you want to come on. And then also, hopefully, with this COVID stuff, we look forward to uh, going down the street and then, uh, doing Roland Martin Unfiltered uh, from Baltimore. Uh, so keep us abreast of the good things happening there. And we certainly uh, uh, will let our folks know what's going on. All right, you will do. And please stay safe, everybody. Thank you. Indeed, we appreciate it. Thank you so very much. That's the, that's the Mayor of Baltimore, Brandon Scott. All right, y'all. Man, uh, sad story here. Another Brandon, 40-year-old Brandon Bernard, was executed last night by lethal injection at the federal penitentiary in Terry Hart, Indiana. Bernard was pronounced dead at 9.27 p.m. He was the youngest person in the United States to receive a death sentence in nearly 70 years after he was convicted for his involvement in the murder of a couple in Central Texas. Despite several valiant attempts to stay the execution, Bernard became the ninth person to die on death row since Donald Trump restarted capital punishment in July. 17 years had passed before that took place. 17 years. But Trump wants to kill as many people as possible before he leaves. There are five more inmates scheduled to be executed before inauguration. Also keep in mind, five of the nine jurors that convicted of him said he deserved, he deserved uh, to uh, not be executed. That's what happens there. Folks, we've been covering the Georgia Senate race. And while we were in Georgia uh, in the past week, we had an opportunity to catch up with John Ossoff, who was challenging uh, David Perdue uh, for one of those two positions. If John Ossoff running against Perdue, you have, of course, Raphael Warnock running against Kelly Leffler. Here is my interview with uh, candidate John Ossoff. John Hosoff, um, these driving rallies are not necessarily how politicians want to campaign, but uh, you got to make do in the situation. Yeah, we have to build energy and inspire turnout while also protecting public health, and we have to set a good example. This is a dangerous time for public health across the country and here in Georgia. And so we're energizing people with our message of health, jobs, and justice, and inspiring people out to the polls while also making sure that we're looking out for people's health. Uh, which is a stark contrast from the rallies uh, that we see uh, led by Trump and Pence and, uh, and Republicans. They're crowding people into enclosed spaces without masks. Uh, they're showing no regard for public health, just as they haven't all year. It's like this macho thing, almost. You know, that um, wearing a mask, keeping distance, following CDC guidelines has become this sort of cultural flashpoint. And this is why we need new leaders in this country who will unite the people to do basic things like follow public health advice. And just yesterday, Georgia hit uh, a record number of, uh, of COVID cases. Yeah, look, the, the, the virus is spreading out of control across the country. This is the consequence when politicians ignore, suppress, and disregard scientific expertise. It's the same thing that's happening with the environment, where you've got politicians funded by the oil and gas industry who have been suppressing climate science for decades. What we've seen with COVID-19 in America this year is politicians who have been suppressing epidemiologists, infectious disease science. As you know, Roland, we have here in Georgia the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. They were sounding the alarm in February, but politicians were suppressing those voices, and that's one of the reasons that this is so out of control now. 
Um, when it comes to issues of policy, obviously voter suppression is a huge issue, health care is a huge issue as well. But one of the things that we've been focused on is also economics, and that is, uh, you know, what Maynard Jackson was able to do, uh, Andrew Young, and all subsequent black mayors of Atlanta, really created this, this economic engine for African Americans. In 73, black people were getting 0.0012% for city contracts in Atlanta. Uh, and you have uh, Kelly Leffer, who's now running ads uh, featuring a, a Republican black businesswoman, yet I actually went on her website trying to find out exactly what is her plan for black and minority-owned businesses, and I've actually yet to see um, for you, what is that plan? Because that is going to be a critical issue. We're talking about uh, shrinking uh, the wealth gap in this country as we move forward to 2043 when America becomes a nation of people people's color. We need about be about building generational wealth in the black community and in black families. Working people in America, and especially working class black and brown people in America, are forced onto this treadmill of financial precariousness and debt, never able to get ahead of the bills, never able to invest, never able to take equity in a home or put money away in a 401k because the rent, the car payment, the prescriptions and education exceed what can be brought in. This is why we need to create the opportunities for people to make a living wage, raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, and ensure that when we make this investment in economic recovery, which we must right now, infrastructure and jobs program, that every community can participate equitably in it. I, I, I've, I'll, I'll send you a photo of me uh, campaigning for Maynard Jackson when I was about four years old. And you're absolutely right that what Maynard Jackson did is he said, okay, we have a majority black city, but the black community is not participating in this incredible engine of economic growth. He made sure that black folks in Georgia could participate in the city of Atlanta's growth and in the wealth that it created. And that is the challenge that we have as a nation because centuries after the establishment of chattel slavery here and decades after the end of segregation and Jim Crow, we still have a huge gap in economic power, access to capital, and access to the ability to create and sustain wealth over generations. It's also having to connect with, with uh, the people. Uh, I looked at the uh, analysis of Metro Atlanta. 100,000 people voted for Joe Biden against Donald Trump, but they skipped your race against David Perdue. Uh, how are you specifically connecting with African-Americans to get them to understand who you are, what you're about, uh, so uh, they are uh, voting for you and not, not repeat what happened uh, on November 3rd? Well, let me say first of all that what we saw on November 3rd was record-shattering black turnout in Georgia. And there was a little bit of drop-off from the top of the ballot, but it was still more votes cast than have ever been cast for any Georgia Democrat in history. So we had record-shattering turnout. We have to exceed it. And when I worked for Congressman Lewis, he taught me to believe in the power of the people to fight for justice. And the movement that we're building in Georgia right now, because it is a movement, led by a black pastor who holds the same pulpit Dr. King did, Stacey Abrams, Lucy McBath, a young Jewish journalist, son of an immigrant, is a movement for health and jobs and justice for the people. That means affordable health care for every family, 
That means investment in economic recovery that Georgia's black community can meaningfully participate in. And that means criminal justice reform through a new civil rights act to make equal justice under the law real in this country. And I believe that that's a message with which we can build a multiracial coalition and we can turn on its head and end the old Republican Southern strategy. When they lengthen my nose in their ads, when they run these racist ads, they're running against the Reverend. They're running a playbook they've run here since the early 1970s to divide people along racial lines. We're creating solidarity across racial lines by making sure that everybody understands that health and jobs and justice are for everybody and must be for everybody. This is a unique uh, situation, first of all, uh, that uh, we signed for uh, Osaf Warnock, Warnock, Osaf. Typically, when folks are running, they're running their own campaign. Uh, Y'all really are having to run a dual campaign because, obviously, Democrats need to win both sit seats in order to be able to control the United States Senate. And so, uh, that's, that's, that, that's, a, that's a lot different than what we normally see in campaigns. Thank y'all for being patient. It is, but it's even more exciting, even more energizing, even more electrifying than any head-to-head -head race could be. Because this race is not about David Perdue and Kelly Leffler. Even Republicans don't like David Perdue and Kelly Leffler. They, everybody knows that they've been using their offices to enrich themselves and lying about it. This race is about our limitless potential as a people and how Georgia represents that hope. That if we're gonna make this country what this country can become, we have to win these two Senate races. If Joe and Kamala are gonna be able to get things done, we have to win these two Senate races. If we are gonna have health and jobs and justice for the people. And that's not just a slogan, that means health. That means health care as a human right. That means jobs for all people that pay a living wage. That means true criminal justice reform. If we're gonna pass that legislative agenda, we have to win these two Senate races. I have the owner of uh, Slutty Vegan on, on my show. Uh, Pinky. Pat Pinky on. Uh, and, and she said it was an, it was an insult for the, for the Purdue campaign to attack you uh, coming by her restaurant. You were there to support Small Business Saturday. Uh, and she said, look, here we are. She said, you know, we, we are a business. We, we employ people. Uh, and she said that ticked off a lot of black folks in Atlanta who are hugely supportive uh, of, of, of the restaurant. Uh, and then for him to say, Georgia, take a pick, as if it was between beef or plant-based. But that really also was an attack on a black-owned business. David Perdue doesn't care about black people. David Perdue attacking a black-owned business like that to score some kind of cheap political points. David Perdue will never utter the words Black Lives Matter. David Perdue is funded by the private prison industry. If it were 1964 and 1965 and David Perdue were in the Senate, he would be filibustering the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. David Perdue's got to go. Last question, there's somebody out there, uh, and we talked about this when uh, Joe Biden was they have not, they don't know what they want to do. They don't, don't know if they want to be able to vote. They're not quite sure. They say, well, I don't really know him. I'm not quite sure. Uh, you can look at that camera right there. Make the case to that voter, that young voter, that older voter, that African-American voter, that white voter, that Republican voter, uh, why uh, they should cast that ballot for you uh, come January 5th. Sure, well, look, December 14th is the first day of early voting. 
And this isn't about Democrats versus Republicans. We got two incumbent senators in Georgia who have been using their offices to enrich themselves while they hold up economic relief for ordinary people. If we're going to pass direct financial relief for families and businesses, if we're going to empower health experts to contain the spread of this virus, if we're going to invest in infrastructure and jobs and pass a new Civil Rights Act, we got to get out and vote and win these two Senate races. And this is not about partisan politics. It's about human rights. It's about health. It's about jobs. It's about justice. I appreciate you having me. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot. All right. Take care. Thank you. All right, folks, uh, just a couple of things here uh, tomorrow. A lot of things happening uh, on tomorrow uh, in Georgia, folks. So remember, early voting starts on Monday, starts on Monday. Uh, Amisha, Lauren, what we're about to see again, uh, the intensity pickup uh, in the streets out here uh, for what's going on uh, on the campaign trail. Uh, this is what's happening, uh, taking place uh, on, uh, go right to, this is Saturday, this is Saturday. Uh, the folks uh, at uh, Black Voters Matter, they are having uh, at uh, three to five tomorrow in Macon, Georgia, the Harriet Tubman Museum. They're having the, their tailgate Christmas concert that is tomorrow. Tomorrow uh, on Sunday in uh, Columbus at the Columbus Civic Center, uh, they're also having a concert there as well. Early vote tailgate at the Columbus Civic Center. That's taking place from 1 to 3 p.m. Black, uh, of course, Roller Martin Unfiltered. We're going to be uh, live streaming both of those events. Also, uh, 5.30 tomorrow in Albany, uh, Georgia. Uh, Reverend Warnock is going to be having a, a campaign event. Uh, I'm going to be there. I'll be in Albany 5.30 tomorrow for that particular event. And also, Teresa Lundy sent, Lundy sent me this here. I'm going to show it for a second. Tomorrow... At 1 p.m. in Albany, I wish I, they, I wish they had sent me this earlier. We would have been there uh, in time. We're going to get there actually after the fact. But uh, the Black Bikers are having their event in Albany tomorrow. Uh, they are going to be. Uh, it, it was wide open. They're going to be, of course, encouraging people, uh, really encouraging them to vote uh, beginning on Monday. That's going to be taking place tomorrow in Albany. It says kickstands up at 1 p.m. Uh, leaving from uh, the, the, the cafe. Uh, there uh, in Albany, um, and this is going to be this is going to be really critical, Amisha. Getting those rural places in Georgia. Yesterday we had uh, hit strategies uh, as well as higher heights in their survey. Black rural women, black women are focused, hyper focused on voting in Georgia, but black rural women not as much. Uh, and so the campaigns, uh, they really are going to have to go after these rural voters because that could very well. Five, ten, twenty thousand votes could very well be the difference between Ossoff and Warnock beating Leffler and Purdue in Georgia. No, you're absolutely correct. And because there are so many rural counties across Georgia, I think that one of the things that the Democrats have often uh, have often to their own detriment left out is thinking when they think rural, they think white people. Um, as if black people don't live in rural areas and where you don't touch, where you don't reach out, you don't see any fruits. You don't see anything happen. Those people don't turn out because nobody speaks to them. I think that at this point, you know, we are we are at a flashpoint in American history where these people can no longer be forgotten. They have to be inclusive. There has to be um, outreach to them. There has to be dedicated motivation towards pushing them to vote and recognizing this, particularly in Georgia right now, the time is where we're up against the wall here. You have to make those efforts right now. And that Atlanta, Georgia is more than Atlanta and the surrounding area. So I think that, you know, this is a very important time for organizations, Black-led organizations as well. I love what the bikers are doing. I love what some of these other organizations are doing and putting a spotlight on areas that aren't within a rock throw of Atlanta. 
look, you got to go outside of Atlanta, Lauren. Uh, and again, those rural votes are going to absolutely matter. Yeah, and I'm sure they will go outside of Atlanta. And I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm sure that the uh, GOTV campaign is is all over the place. Frankly, I don't know how they're doing it. We're having this COVID spike uh, at the same time. It's a real challenge uh, to be doing that work in this situation. But I'm sure that they're doing it somehow. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how the turnout is because any special election, uh, the, the turnout question is always really difficult to answer. But uh, this is a really obviously is a huge moment. It's about control of the U.S. Senate, and it's about uh, effectively uh, giving Joseph Biden, uh, President-elect Joseph Biden, the chance to actually govern. Uh, again, folks, so we're going to be so this weekend, folks, uh, look for us to live stream three to five for making Georgia black voters matter from five at five thirty. Uh, the Warnock event taking place in Albany, Georgia. Then on Sunday, uh, we'll be in Columbus, Georgia with black voters matter live streaming that event as well right here. And so you follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Periscope. And don't forget Monday, first day of early voting. We're going to be going around doing interviews there. Tuesday, Joe Biden comes to town to campaign for John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock. We will be there on the ground uh, showcasing you that as well. And so this is why we created this platform. We're not about sitting here waiting on mainstream media to cover our stuff. We can do it ourselves. And so we want you to support us in what we do. Every dollar that you've given to us has been hugely beneficial to be able to cover the kind of stuff that we're talking about. That's why we want you to support us by joining our Bring the Funk fan club. Go to our cash app, dollar sign RM Unfiltered, paypal.me forward slash rmartin unfiltered, venmo.com forward slash rm unfiltered. I need to have Kenan add Zale to this. The Zale email is rolling at rolandsmartin.com. You can send a money order to New Vision Media, NU, Vision Media, Inc., 1625 K Street Northwest, Suite 400. Washington, D.C., 2006. Uh, and so we certainly thank all the folks uh, who uh, who support us in what we do. Lauren, thank you very much. Uh, Amisha, thank you so much. You. Andrew left early. We thank him as well. Folks, that is it for us. Uh, but before we go, uh, my apologies, folks. Uh, of course, we do have uh, one last story uh, in memoriam. Uh, of course, uh, Tiny Lister. Of course, many of us remember him from being in the movie Friday and so many others uh, was found dead in his home yesterday at the age of 62. Uh, according to Lister's manager, Cindy Cowan, deputies arrived at the 62-year-old's Los Angeles apartment for a welfare check. Upon arrival, they found Lister unresponsive. Cowan says Lister was experiencing COVID symptoms. However, at this time, an official cause of death has not been determined. He started his career as a pro wrestler and then went on to become best known for his role as Devo in the Friday film franchise. He also played the role of President Lindbergh in The Fifth Element. And he played Adam Sandler's brother in the film Little Nicky. Lister leaves behind his wife, Felicia Forbes, and their daughter, Faith. Uh, I had an opportunity to meet, uh, uh, meet Tiny uh, on so many different occasions. He was a great brother. Uh, you see the Debo character. He always used that one to scare folks, especially little kids. But he really, really was a gentle giant. Uh, and uh, we certainly uh, are going to miss his presence. And so uh, we pay our respects uh, to Tiny Lister. So we always end our So we, that's it for us. We always end our show on Friday uh, showing members of our Brina Funk fan club and so we're going to close it out doing that way as well uh, I will see you tomorrow from Georgia uh, and then of course tomorrow Sunday and then Roller Mart Unfiltered on Monday where we keep it real, keep it unapologetic, keep it unfiltered because we keep it black
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe Ventilation System exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe Ventilation System. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today.